0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I'm going to read from a book I've been on a subject matter I've been very curious about. It's the story of Gilles de Rye, or Gilles de Retz, or Gilles de Montmorency. So he's known by many names, but he was the Marshal of France during the 15th century. And he came to my attention through my readings of Crowley, who wrote something called The Band, a lecture about Gilles de Rye, which was supposed to be given... At oxford university in 1930 but it was banned and the lecture that he was supposed to give is still in his writings but uh, it's based upon the light like i said the life of Gilles de rye there's a bunch of french historical uh authors who have written about Gilles de rye and there's a number of books about him he's also known as bluebeard this particular book that i'm going to read from in its entirety it's fairly short it's written by thomas wilson published in 1899 in New York, the Knickerbocker Press. And the title of his book is Bluebeard, a Contribution to History and Folklore, being the history of Gilles de Retz of Brittany, France, who was executed at Nantes in 1440 AD. And he was the original of Bluebeard in the Tales of Mother Goose. I'm going to read from the entirety of the book, which is seven chapters. There's also four appendices. uh, And the titles of the chapters are Chapter 1, Gilles de Retz, 1404-1420, his name, family, marriage, and education. Chapter 2, Gilles as a soldier, 1420-1429. First for John V, Duke of Brittany against the House of Blois. He joins the army of France and is assigned to duty with Jeanne of Arc, crowning of the king, and Gilles made marshal of France. Chapter 3, Gilles' life at home in Brittany, 1430-1439. The personal appearance of Gilles de Retz, an epitome of his life, his extravagance and ruinous expenditures, his inheritance, his sales and transfers of property, his love for the theater, mysteries, that of the siege of Orléans, mysteries at Nantes, the cathedral, expensive visit to Orléans, Maison de la Suze, the decree of the king interditing his sale or encumbrance of property. An increasing demand for money drives him to magic in search for the philosopher's stone and the transmutation of base metals into gold. Magic. Chapter 4. Jill's Crimes. Jill's Abduction of Children, his familiars, Chateau de Tiffage. First process against Gilles. Warrant, arrest, and imprisonment. Chateau de Nantes. Chapter 5. Gilles' trial before the ecclesiastical tribunal. The ecclesiastical tribunal. Record in the archives of l'or inferieur. The trial, his confession, judgment, and sentence. In Chapter 7. The trial before the civil court. Trial before the civil court. Depositions, convictions, conviction, and sentence. In Chapter 7. The execution. Uh, The appendices are Mother Goose Publications, Bluebeard Stories, Mystery of the Siege of Orléans, and Depositions in Civil Court against Jill. Introduction The story of Bluebeard has become a classic and infantile mythical folklore, literature wherever the English and French languages are spoken. Reverend Dr. Shahan suggests its possible existence in earlier languages and more distant countries. The story is more or less, less mythical. While it does not follow history with any pretense of fidelity, is come to be recognized by the historians historians and literati of France as representing the life of Gilles de Retz, or Rye, a soldier of Brittany in the first half of the 15th century. He was of noble birth, was possessed of much riches, was the lord of many manners, had a certain genius and ability, made some reputation as a soldier at an extremely early age, fought with Joan of Arc, and was marshal of France. At the close of these wars, he retired to his estates in Brittany, And in connection with an Italian magician, he entered upon a search for the elixir of youth and the philosopher's stone. Together they became possessed by the idea that the foundation of this elixir should be the blood of infants or maidens, and using the almost unbridled power incident to a great man at that early date in that wild country, they abducted many maidens and children who were carried to some of his castles and slain. Suspicion was finally directed towards him. He was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death and executed in the city of Nantes, October 27, 1440, at the early age of 36 years. The author of this volume was sent in 1882 to the good city of Nance as a United States consul. While resident there, he entered upon the investigation which resulted in this volume. He obtained access to the original records of the trial in the archives of the department and made a photographic copy of one of its manuscript Latin pages, which is shown in its proper place. The trial of Gilles de Retz took place in the Chateau of Nantes. Sentence was pronounced at the Place Buffet, and he was executed on the Prairie de la Madeleine, the exact locality being now occupied by the Hospital of St. Anne. The author procured photographs and drawings of some of these localities, which will appear in this volume. Monsieur Charles Perrault was the author of The Story of Bluebeard. He was born at Paris, January twelfth, 1628. His father was an advocate, originally from Tours. He was the youngest of four brothers. The oldest, Peter, was destined for the bar, but became the Receiver General of Finances under Louis the Fourteenth, and his Prime Minister Colbert, though he afterwards fell out of favor and died in poverty. Claude studied medicine and Nicholas theology. Charles was taken up by Colbert and made superintendent of public buildings throughout the kingdom. While in this position, the erection of the observatory and the reconstruction and completion of the Palais du Louvre were determined upon plans for these buildings were to be decided by competition, and the renown of the name of Perrault is greatly increased by the fact that Charles's brother Claude, although educated as a doctor of medicine and not as an architect, designed plans which, after much discussion and investigation, extending even to Rome, were finally adopted by the king and his minister. Charles Perrault became a member of the Academy, one of the Immortal Forty. He introduced many improvements into their methods, the principle of which was for securing the attendance of members and a continuance of and devotion to the work of preparing the great french dictionary an episode in his life covering several years was his poem of le sic le louis de la grande and the parallel between the ancients and moderns which produced a discussion among the most brilliant writers of france Beaulieu, racine la fontaine l'ampierre bouet arnaud and other illustrious champions took up the cudgels against Perrault and Fontenelle, and in favor of the ancient classic heroes. In 1662, Perrault retired from his office in the public building, selling his right therein to Monsieur de Blainville, a son-in-law of Colbert. Until his death, May 16, 1703, he devoted himself to literature and to the education of his children, and this was probably the happiest portion of his life, for he loved to be in the bosom of his family. He wrote for the amusement of his children that which has now become the most celebrated of his writings which has done more to perpetuate his name and fame by which he is better known than by the more pretentious and serious papers and poems The Contes de Mère L'Hoy, or Stories of Mother Goose The first edition was published in 1697 under the name of his son de d'Armancourt and dedicated to Mademoiselle Elis- Elizabeth Charlotte d'Orlon the sister of the Duke of Chartres and the niece of louis the 14th these mother goose stories were as follows little red riding hood the fairies Bluebeard, the sleeping beauty puss in boots cinderella riquette a la hoop to which la petite poussée the adroit princess in the ass's skin were afterwards added there were still others in verse and fabled translations perrault was much more poet than prose writer his serious works were in poetry painting the apology for woman the century of louis the grand "'Genius to Fontenelle, and a portrait of the voice of Iris. "'We, however, are interested alone in Bluebeard. "'Studious historians or astute critics may dispute Perrault's history of Bluebeard, "'having been founded upon the life of Gilles de Retz, "'but the country people, the folk of Brittany, "'will simply smile at such erudition and continue in their former belief "'that Bluebeard represents a cruel, wicked man "'who lived here hundreds of years ago "'and who was executed for his many crimes against humanity.' And the old men and women and the nurses will repeat the story of Gilles de Retz under the name of Bluebeard. Sometimes how he abducted and murdered the children, and other times how he murdered his wives. In that country, Gilles de Retz will always be known as Bluebeard, and we must accept their verdict as final. Reverend Dr. Shahan writes, Dear Professor Wilson, I have looked through your interesting work with the greatest pleasure. It is just such a tale as I would delight in tracing through its strange genesis and stranger propaganda. I wonder if the actual facts were not soon plated back into ancient nursery tales of a kindred tone and a fresh lease of life thus given to mythical narratives that would otherwise not have had strength enough to perpetuate themselves to our time, at least in such intensity and vitality. I would suggest as complete a literature of the Bluebeard subject as possible, and think perhaps it would be well to see what roots it had struck in German, Spanish, and Welsh soil, fields always susceptible at that time to anything odd or romantic. When I was a child, how I often cried with Sister Anne on the high tower, and looked for three specks out on the ocean, no bigger than the head of a pin. Thank God, their steeds were always breasted the flood bravely and arrived in time to save injured innocents. Is it not the true origin of Bluebeard, in an age of chivalrous ideal, of strict theological popular views of justice, or, and of feudal individualism? The box of Pandora and the key of Bluebeard may have some relationship, curiosity, Irrepressible through danger though dangerous is its keynote, and I wonder if it does not all come from India, like those medieval tales that Gaston Perry tells about, or if it is not an old Gaelic myth, like that of Balor of the Mighty Blows, so well translated by Standish O'Grady in his Silva Gadelica. Yours very truly Thomas J. Shahan Chapter one Gilles de Retz. His name, family, marriage, and education. The original of Bluebeard in the Mother Goose story was Gilles de Rye, changed in 1581 to Retz, though he is sometimes called Gilles de Laval in history. Neither the date nor the place of his birth is known with precision, but it took place in the autumn of 1404, probably at Machacoul, one of the family chateaux in the southern part of Brittany. The ancestors of Gilles de, Gilles de Retz belonged to four noble and illustrious families in Brittany. One, Laval, sometimes called Montmorency Laval. Two, Rye, changed to Retz in 1581. Three, Machacoul, and four, Creon. These families could trace their ancestry to the 11th or 12th centuries. Gilles's father was a Laval, or Montmorency Laval, named Guy. His grandfather was also Guy, and many of his ancestry bore the same surname. His grandmother was a sister of the great du Guesclin. His great grandmother was Joan, called La Folle or the Crazy. The house of Rye in that day was represented by Jeanne Sage, the Wise, thirteen seventy one, fourteen o six. Being without heirs, she in fourteen hundred, by solemn act, adopted Guy de Laval, the father of Gilles, as her heir and successor. A legal impediment existed in an act of disinheritance which had been passed against Jeanne Lafal, the grandmother of Guy de Laval, and it required a special decree to enable Guy to accept the inheritance. This was finally done under the condition that he should abandon the name, arms, and escutcheon of the family of Laval and bear those of Rye. But Jean Lesage afterwards repented of her choice and attempted, by act of May 14, 1402, to change her succession in favor of Catherine de Machacoul. This begat a suit at law, which was taken by appeal to the Parliament at Paris. By this time, Jean de Crone had come to be heir of his mother, Catherine de Machacoul. He had a daughter named Marie, and for the settlement of a contest which, it was feared with reason, might be interminable, it was agreed between the families, as it was between York and Lancaster, that the representatives of the two respective houses should be intermarried, and accordingly, in the spring of 1404, Guy de Laval, changed to Guy de Rye, was married to Marie de Creon, and thus it was that Guy de Laval, father of Gilles, became the heir and successor, successor of Jeanne Lesage of Rye, received her property, and took her name. There has been some dispute among the historians of Brittany to, as to the dates, but it is agreed that the contest of law between the two families was begun in 1402, and still found on the parliamentary records in 1403, and was settled by the marriage which was the best authorities could agree, could take place February 5th, 1404. Guy de Laval, Rye, and Marie de Creon were the parents of Gilles de Rye, who was their firstborn. His birth is believed to have taken place at the Chateau de Machacoul during the last months of the year 1404. A doubt has been thrown over these dates, especially that of his birth, because of his extreme youth when he made his appearance in public affairs. If born at that time, he would appear to have been a Marshal of France at 25 years of age, But this was not impossible, and the weight of the evidence seems to favor the dates as given. The parents of Gilles had another son, René de La Lassouz, and he seems to have made but little figure compared with his redoubtable brother. Guy de Laval, the father, died on the last day of October 1415, and the records show his last will and testament dated on the 28th and 29th of that month. He gave the tutelage of his sons to a distant cousin, John de Tournamine, but by some means not appearing. The maternal ga- grandfather, Joan de Creon, took upon himself their guardianship. The mother, Marie, was remarried soon after the death of her husband to Charles de Souville, the Lord of Villebonne. The grandfather of Gilles and René seems to have been excessively indulgent and devoted to the children, and if he was old, he was of strong will, fiery temper, staunch patriotism, and obstinate disposition. In 1417, when Gilles was but 13 years old, he was engaged by his grandfather to Joan Paynell, the daughter of Foulkes Paynell, the lord of Hambui and Brickbeck, but the contract was voided by her death. In November 1418, the grandfather made for him a second contract of marriage, this time to Beatrice de Rohan, the eldest daughter of Elaine de Porhot. The contract was signed at Vannes with great ceremony in the presence of an illustrious throng of Breton nobles. But this contract came to an end, as did the former. By the unfortunate death of the young lady. This double failure did not, however, discourage the doting grandfather. He immediately proceeded with his arrangements for a third contract, this time with Catherine de Thouars, the daughter of Miles de Thouars and Beatrice de Morgan, and this marriage was celebrated on the last day of November, 1420. The young wife Catherine brought to her husband Gilles the property of Tiffage, Pouzage, Savonnet, Confolons, Chabonnet, and others of minor importance. The first two mentioned were well provided with Chateau. The property and Chateau of Machecoul came to Gilles through his mother's family, and the Chateau and property of Shem-Tos came to him upon the death of his grandfather. Thus with the fortune of his father, Guy de Laval, to which must be added that of the family of Rye left by Joan Lesage, made Gilles de Rye one of the richest barons in the province. Under the conditions of the adolescence of Gilles de Retz, his education may be better imagined than described. Left at the age of eleven an orphan or a half-orphan, by the death of his father, the remarriage of his mother with any year thereafter, the contest of greater or less gravity over his guardianship, which ended in the success of his maternal grandfather, whose best recommendation for the position seems to have been his love for his grandchildren and his subsequent willingness to indulge them, and also his great desire to get them, especially the elder, married and off his hands a proceeding which he conducted with such celerity that the young man was engaged three times, all with pomp and formality, and finally married by the time he was sixteen years old. This would seem to afford but little or time or opportunity to obtain an education, even under the best facilities, however studious and seriously inclined he might have been. Education did not stand very high in the province of Brittany at this era. There was much excuse, especially for the nobles and barons of Brittany, for their lack of education, The profession of war seems to have been the highest recommendation, and the shortest, as well as the easiest and most agreeable road to preferment. There is much to be said on the score of patriotism and the needs of the country, for as will be seen farther on, it was an era of war, and Brittany was in the midst of it. The education in arms was almost inevitable. It had greater attraction for Gilles than books, arts, or sciences, and it appeared that his grandfather allowed him to pursue his own wishes and desires without even an attempt at control. Gilles, during his trial, said, quote, In my youth, I was allowed to go always according to my own sweet will, unquote. Nevertheless, he spoke three languages, Latin, French, and Breton, and had some knowledge of chemistry, and it seems to be without question that he had a library, so well chosen as to be an object of commendation and attraction to highly educated persons. In the inventory of his effects... Taken in 1436 and found among his records is a receipt of Jean Moncler given to Jeanne Bourret, for a copy of Ovid's Metamorphoses, described to have been in parchment covered with leather gilt, with copper clasps and locks of silver gilt, with a crucifix of white silver on the back. Chapter 2. Gilles as Soldier, 1420-1429 First for John V, Duke of Brittany against the House of Blois, He joins the army of France and is assigned to duty with Joan of Arc, crowning of the king, and Gilles made marshal of France. In the condition of his country at that time, it was but natural that this handsome, impetuous, rich, and powerful baron should take up arms as his profession. France and England were in the midst of the Hundred Years' War. Brittany, Gilles' own duchy, had been, since the death of John IV, engaged in a civil war over the succession. The family of Montfort, son of a younger son, had gained victory over the Pentheirs' and Blois, daughter of an elder son. Gilles' father and his family had fought on the side of Blois, but on his defeat they had made their peace with the victorious duke. When Gilles was about 16 years old, an incident occurred which renewed the civil war and swept him into its midst. The head of the Blois family with his mother, the daughter of de Clisson, set a trap for John V de Montfort, Duke of Brittany, inviting him, under a flag of truce, to a friendly conference to be held at the castle of champ this conference was only a pretense. The flag of truce was violated, and John V was entrapped and held prisoner. He was treated with great severity, bound in chains, and cast into a dungeon. This inhuman treatment on the part of the Blois and penthieves being in violation of every principle held sacred by men and soldiers, aroused the indignation of the Bretons to a pitch beyond control. The peculiar interest of this to the present memoir is that, while the ancestral family of Gilles de Rye had always theretofore fought on the side of the Pen, Thieves and Blois, they now turned to the other side and took up for John V of Montfort. De Guesclin, the uncle, and Brumor, the grandfather of Gilles de Rise on his father's side, were now dead, but Jean de Creon, his grandfather on his mother's side, he who had been so indulgent a guardian, still lived, and on the 23rd of February, 1420, a few months before the marriage of Gilles, they repaired to the town of Vannes, attending upon a session of the state's general, convoked in the absence of the duke by his wife. Part of the ceremony of Gilles and his grandfather was the oath of allegiance for the deliverance of their prince. Quote, We swear upon the cross to employ our bodies and our goods to enter into this quarrel for life and for death, unquote. And they signed it with their proper hands and sealed it with their seals. The war broke out anew. Alain de Rohan was made lieutenant general. An army of 50,000 men volunteered and took the field under him. In the front rank, rank, by the side of his grandfather, at the head of all the vassals of their united baronies, was Gilles de Retz. This army marched against Lambal, which capitulated Guingamp, the same family, and successfully, successively, Hugon, chateau Brune, Brun, and finally against the chateau of champ in which the duke was incarcerated. This resisted the insult, but was besieged and finally taken, the fortress demolished, and John V was released and returned to Nantes, where he was given a triumphal entry. The Chateau de Clisson, the headquarters of the Pen, Pentheve faction, was south of Nantes 20 kilometers, in the, in the immediate neighborhood of the most extensive property of Gilles de Retz, in revenge for his adhesion to the Duke of Brittany, which Margaret de Clisson was pleased to call his treason to her side she found it most convenient to raid and destroy the adjacent properties of Gilles de Retz. In reprisal, the Duchess of Brittany confiscated certain rights which Olivier, Count de Blois, had in or about the Chateau de Clisson and transferred them to the family of Gilles, and this was ratified by the Duke after his release. Then, as he says, quote, in recognition of the good and loyal services of his cousins of Suse and Rise, unquote, he gives them all the lands of Oliver de Blois Formerly Count de Pentheve and of Charles his brother, as was afterwards compromised by the payment of a certain sum of money, Pentheve, Blois and Clisson were cited to appear before the States General, at which Gilles and his grandfather assisted as counsellors. And as an end of all things, the Parliament of Brittany declared the Pentheves guilty of felony, treason, and les majesté, condemned them to death, and deprived them in perpetuity perpetuity of their name, arms, and all honor in Brittany, but they escaped to France. This was the introduction of Gilles de Retz to the profession of arms and his first appearance as one of the lords of the country. He was at the time only 16 years old, and immediately upon the conclusion of this campaign, he was married to Catherine de Thouard. France at that epoch was in danger of the fate which afterwards befell Poland. The duchy of Aquitaine, which comprised nearly all southwestern France, had for its Duke, Edward III, King of England. The Duchy of Burgundy had for its head Philip the Good, who was Count of Flanders, and was stronger in his duchy than was the King of France in his kingdom. These two were banded together by a treaty, offensive and defensive, and they and their countries were then, and had been for nigh sixty years, carrying on war against France, with the avowed determination of establishing the King of England on her throne. The Duke of Bedford, son in law of the Duke of Burgundy, was the English general commanding in France. The Count of Richemont, the second son of the Duke of Brittany, was also the son in law of the Duke of Burgundy. Thus, these strong nobles, princes, and kings were allied against France. In the dukedom of Brittany, the contending houses of Blois and Montfort had been aided, respectively, by the King of France and the King of England, who had accepted and supported an English army on Breton soil. We all know of the condition of the Dukedom of Normandy, how only a few hundred er- years earlier William captured England at the Battle of Hastings and established himself as her king. This process was now in danger of repetition, only with the conditions reversed, and France had in prospect a worse fate than she had ever before, than she ever had before or since. Such was the condition of France at that time at the death of Charles VI. On October 21st, 1422, when his son, Charles VII, came to the throne. Charles VII was married to Mary of Anjou, the daughter of Yolande of, Aragorn, of Aragon, Queen of Sicily, the widow of Louis of Anjou, a woman of noble heart, great spirit, and patriotism, and devoted to France. Yolande set herself, with all her beauty and diplomacy, to divide and break up this coterie of great noblemen who had organized themselves against the king and to induce some of them to become supporters of France. On March 24, 1425, Yolan started for Brittany, accompanied by sundry, powerful seigneurs. Jean de Creon, grandfather of Gilles de Retz, was one of those approached, and his valiant services rendered to John V of Brittany, in releasing him from the dungeon at champs Tussaud gave him great and deserved influence. Gilles de Retz had returned to his home after the defeat of the Blois party, and was reside, residing there in the quiet and peace of his newly married life, when this new turn was made in the political kaleidoscope. A council of the States General of Brittany was assembled at the city of Nantes, and Gilles was one of the seigneurs in attendance. Naturally, he would be one of the lieutenants of his grandfather, Jean de Creon, who had openly espoused the cause of the King of France, and who went into the council with the express desire to win the Duke of Brittany in that direction. The assembly pronounced strongly in favor of the alliance with the King of France, and the month of September was fixed as the time, and the town of Saumur, midway between Nantes and Angers, was appointed as the place for a conference between the Duke of Brittany and the King of France. The terms fixed by the Duke were the same as those laid down by the Duke of Burgundy. That was the expulsion of the Penthièvre and Blois families from the court of France. The King consented, and thus gained the active aid of the Duke of Brittany, and the moral support of the Duke of Burgundy. The peace between the Duke of Brittany and the King of France brought its first great fruits in the offer of the, to the King by the Count of Richmond, the brother of the Duke of Brittany, of his services against England, which was accepted, and he, the Count of Richmond, was made constable of France. To him, probably more than to any other man, was France indebted for the final victory over England and the establishment of France in her place among the nations of the world. Gilles de Retz, still with his grandfather, Jean de Creon, embraced the side of the king with ardor. He was rich, and Charles was poor. He entered with spirit into all the pleasure and gaiety of the court. He became a pronounced favorite, and despite subsequent defection or opposition of the Duke of Brittany, and the renunciation or withdrawal of favor from the Count of Richmond, Gilles de Retz and his grandfather remained indissolubly bound to Charles Seventh and to France. The first appearance of Gilles de Retz in the service of the king of France or as a member of his court, was September 8th, 1425. He took service with the Breton troops and made his first essay as a soldier on the side of the King of France in the siege of Saint-Jean-de-Bouvron. Gilles de Retz associated himself with Ambrose de lore and Baron Beaumanois, the son or grandson of him who led the fight for Brittany in the combat de Trent. These three attacked and captured the fortress of Ringfort in Anjou which capitulated with terms that spared the English soldiers, but left to be punished the Frenchmen who had committed treason against their country. Ambrose de Lourdes sought to save them, but Gilles was firm in his decision that they should hang as traitors, and such was their fate. The Chateau of Malincourt was attacked by the same three, captured and surrendered on the same terms. The two friends, Beaumanoir and Gilles, held together in their undertakings. They were together at the siege siege of Mont-Targis, which was conducted by Constable Richmond and Lahire. It was at this siege that Lahire, about to make the assault, was asked to join with the rest in prayer to God for aid and safety in the coming fight. He had not much experience in religious vernacular, but he joined hands, and with the fervor of a bigot and the faith of a devotee said, O God, I pray thee to do for me today what thou wouldst that I should do for thee, were I God. And thou, Lahire. In the assault which immediately followed, Gilles de Retz arrived on the top of the wall in advance of his soldiers. The first Englishman encountered was Captain Blackburn, the commander of the English forces, whom Gilles engaged in a hand to hand combat, killing him outright. On seeing their chief slain, the English soldiers threw down their arms and capitulated on the usual terms. This exploit was recognized by all his superiors and covered the young soldier with glory. But the victories of the French in the north were not equal to those gained by the English in the south, who, having captured nearly all France, Paris included, advanced into the interior, until at last they appeared before Orléans and commenced its memorable siege. Then, in 1429, came the brilliant meteor across the sky of France, Joan of Arc, the maid of Orléans. Her visions at Dôme Rémy, her travels across France, passing safely through the lines of the enemy, Her arrival at the castle castle of Chinon, her presentation to the king, her assault and capture of Orléans are all matters of history. The theater of her exploits in western France was not far distant from the barony and residence of Gilles de Retz. He was the kind of man to be captivated by the maid of Orléans, and he became one of her most devoted followers. It is said that he received from the king orders to be captain in her escort, whether as its commander does not appear, but he was with her at chinon Potier, Blois, Orléans, Jargot, Meung, Beaugency, and Pâté. On the occasion of the king's coronation at Rheims, Gilles de Retz received the baton of the Marshal of France. There is a question as to the date, but none as to the fact. Some authorities give the date at June 21, 1429. Others again say that with their peers of France, he was promoted on the day of the coronation of the king, July 17, 1429. Still others ass- assert it to have been in the month of september it is explainable that all these that all three of these dates are correct for the king might well have announced on the earliest date that he was to be promoted to the rank of marshal of france the ceremony of installation may have taken place upon the occasion of the king's coronation and yet the commission not have been signed or recorded until september that he was a high officer in a command upon that occasion and in favor with the king cannot be doubted. The kings of France, from Clovis, the first convert to Christianity, down to Louis XIV, were crowned in the cathedral at Rheims. There is a tradition that upon the crowning of King Clovis, a white dove miraculously descended from heaven and hovered over, if it did not alight upon the king's head, bearing in its beak the ampulla containing the consecrated oil for his coronation. The latter was retained and became a holy emblem under the name Saint-Empoule and was preserved in the abbey of Saint-Rémy near the cathedral at Rheims until it was destroyed during the French Revolution. From Clovis to Louis XIV, it figured in the coronation of every king of France. At the coronation of Charles Seventh, Gilles de Retz as Marshal of France, Marshal, Boussac, Admiral de Coulon, and Lord Greyville were the four nobles of France Chosen as its escort and guard of honor. After the coronation, Gilles remained in the service of his former position of guard or captain of the guard of Joan of Arc. He accompanied her to Paris, which the English evacuated and left to the care of the Duke of Burgundy. The capture of Joan at Compiègne took place May twentieth, fourteen thirty, and her execution May thirtieth, fourteen thirty one. There is no evidence reported of Gilles's presence during any of this time. There has been found among the records of the Barony of Rye, a paper wherein he acknowledged a debt to, quote, Roland Malvossin, captain of Prinquet, sum of 28 crowns of gold, for the purchase of a horse, saddle, and bridle, promised to his dear and well-beloved Michael Macaffer, captain of a certain company, as soon as they arrived at Louver, in order to engage said captain to come with him on this voyage, unquote. The paper was dated... December 26, 1431, and is signed in his own proper hand. Chapter 3 Gilles' Life at Home in Brittany, 1430 1439. The personal appearance of Gilles de Retz, an epitome of his life, his extravagance and ruinous expenditures, his inheritance, his sales and transfers of property, his love for the theatre, mysteries, that of the siege of Orleans, mysteries at Nantes, the cathedral, expensive visit to Orléans, Maison de la Suze, the decree of the king interdict- interditing his sale and inc- or encumbrance of property. The increased demand for money drives him to magic, in search for the philosopher's stone and the transmutation of base metals into gold. Magic. There are but two known portraits of Gilles de Retz, that is in the place of Versailles is purely imaginative, and was only made to complete the series of the Marshals of France. It is not known by whom or at what time the other was made. In 1438, Gilles was 35 years old, tall, handsome, and well-formed. He showed in his face figure and in every movement his spirit and pride. He had a high rather than broad forehead. His nose was prominent and slightly aquiline. The nostrils were large and thin, and on occasions of anger spread and quivered in an interesting and threatening manner. His lips were rather thin but well-colored and had a tinge of delicate and refined sensuality. Like many of the Breton raced, his complexion was fair, his eyes large and blue, and his eyebrows and lashes long and black. His hair was also long and black, and beard the same. It was soft and silky, with its raven blackness became shiny, giving it a tinge of blue-black, which may have served as a foundation for a pseudonym in that country. His neck was neither too short, too long, nor yet too large but seemed a full column of nervous strength calculated to support solidly and well his head and brain with whatever of pride, audacity, and confidence it might have. His soldier, shoulders were square, his body long, and his waist small, while the bust and hips were large and fairly placed upon the muscular legs, which stood straight under him, giving his body firm support. His fingers were long and tapering, his hands small, and their fair complexion, when brought in contact with his velvet costume and lace ruffles, showed them to good advantage. Thus, he had the physical appearance of an athlete, trained in all the exercises of the body, of much strength, a good walker, a good rider, and capable of any feat at arms. Michelet, the historian of France, describes Gilles as of bon entendement, belle personne et bon façon, lettre de plus, and appreciant force, le quai evac elegance les langue the mayor says that jill when he appeared before the court was dressed in pantaloons tight skin after the fashion of the day in shirt and vest all of white wool with boots also white over this was a doublet of pearl gray silk embro- embroidered with gold in a hood of ermine a sash of scarlet about his waist which supported a poniard with red velvet scabbard he wore his military and seigneurial medals and orders and about his neck a chain of gold with a requillery from the latter he never parted how much of this description is actual and how much imaginary will probably never be known but in the attractiveness of his person and manner Gilles de Retz compared with the best of his race in that country and the foregoing might have been a fairly truthful representation he seems the model of a gentleman of his time his life being divided between the chase war and his adventures he had beauty, force, riches, and occupied the highest rank among the nobility of his province. To him, nature and fortune had been blindly prodigal in their gifts. On Gilles' return from service in the army of France after the murder of Joan of Arc, he retired to his chateau, dwelling alternately at Machecoul and Tefage, with an occasional visit to his Hotel de la Suze in Nantes. He engaged in no serious business, but apparently resigned himself to domestic pleasures and happiness. He established himself in a princely fashion. The interiors of the chateau were decorated in the most magnificent and luxurious manner possible. He maintained a small army, the members of which were in his own pay. He was passionately fond of music. He purchased instruments and organized all sorts of musical competitions and displays. He established a religious hierarchy, having as a member of his own household a pseudo-bishop with a large retinue and all the necessary paraphernalia, including rich vestments for his servants and expensive decorations for his chapels. This luxurious, magnificent, expensive mode of living was carried on for so long a time, increasing to such an alarming extent that his brother René presented a memoir or petition to the king, called in history Memoir de Heritier, wherein these expenditures and extravagances were set forth as great length, and with as much detail and redundant phrase as though it were a bill in equity. This memoir ended with the prayer that the king should pass a, degree, a decree against Gilles, interdicting him from making sale, transfer, or alienation, or mortgaging or pledging any of his property. This process is not unknown to French law. Without having the law of primogeniture as in England, the heirs had yet yet had certain rights, which, consequent upon the death of Gilles, would accrue to them under the law of France. And thus it was that the king was prayed to take the necessary steps for the protection of the rights of the heirs. In this proceeding, his brother, René de La Lassou, seems to have been the principal and moving spirit, although he was afterwards aided and abetted by his cousin, Guy de Laval. From the Memoire de la Heritaire we get a knowledge of the property of Gilles de Retz, the list of his lands, possessions, and income, with his family and ancestry, through which he received them, was as follows. From the House of Rye, left by Jean de La Sage, First the title of Baron, then the rank of Dean of Barons in the Duchy of Brittany, with its chateaux and dependencies in great number, of which the principal are only named. Machacul, Saint Etienne, de Mermort, Pornse, Prince, Vu, ile de Buin, etc. From the house of Montmorency-Laval, the original ancestry of his father, independent of his adoption by Joan Lesage, the seigneuries of Blaison, Chamis, Fontaine, Milan, Gratis and Anjou, of Ambriere, Saint Alban de Fosse, Louvain, province of Maine, and others in Brittany. From the house of Creon, through his grandfather and his mother, the Hotel de la Suze at Nantes, the seigneuries and Chateau of Briolet, Champtos, and Ingrand's province, of Anjou, Senechet, La Rue, Bagnat, and Rye, Volt, and others. From his wife on their merits, Marriage Tiffage, Buzage, Chabenay, Comfrolange, Chateau Morant, Savay, Savanay, Lambert, Grey sur Main, with Poussieres, Arterre, Fourbelles, and Lure dependencies. The value of this immense property has been estimated at four and a half million of francs, although this may be exaggerated. His personal property was valued at one time at a hundred thousand gold crowns, and his income was variously estimated from 30 to 60,000 pounds per annum. It was alleged that he had made sales and transfers of property in an improvident manner and to an unjustifiable extent, dissipating, to that extent, his patrimony, to the damage of his estate and to the detriment of his heirs. These were given somewhat in detail in the memories. During some period, most likely in his younger days and before his services in the army, Gilles de Ratz became enamored of the theater, his taste in this luxury was in the same extra- extravagant style as the chapels, the bishop, and his religious secretaries. There have been many histories of the theater and the drama in France written by French historians. There may be many others, but with them all, our understanding of the extravagance and expenditure and the consequent elegance, and richness attained by the theaters in France during the period in which we are now interested would be incomplete without a study of the life of Gilles de Retz. His love for the theater manifested itself not simply in looking at the spectacle and hearing the play, but in organizing, arranging, and presenting the plays of the time in theaters established and conducted by himself. Some of those presentations were in his own chateau, but others were given in the neighboring cities Nantes, Angers, Blois, Orléans, and minor places in the provinces of Brittany, Maine, Anjou, Touraine, and Poitou. One cause of his indulgence in the theater theatrical display appears to have been the desire to make himself popular with the people. That he loved the theater and its plays, and that they gave him pleasure, is not to be doubted, but after all, it is supposed that his ambition to shine among the people formed the real foundation. The theater had always been intended as a means of amusement, an attempt was made in France and the Latin countries during the 15th century to combine in the theater instruction of a religious kind with pleasure and amusement. This attempt was fostered by the clergy, and in its execution, theatrical plays were performed in sundry chapels and sanctuaries. Whether the passion play at Oberammergau is a revival or continuation of this custom is suggested but not decided. But such plays were common enough in the 15th century and met with favor in the church. In its origin, this departure was exclusively religious and was adopted by the church as an ingenious and original continuation of the education of the people in the mysteries of the Christian religion. Originally, it employed only sacred topics and used only terms taken from the ritual or from the Bible and was altogether in prose Latin. With the lapse of time, the imagination of authors, and the progress of popular language, theatrical presentations passed from the chapels and holy places to the public places, and the Latin language was superseded by the vulgar. The priest who had conducted the play gave way to laymen, and the liturgy of the drama was superseded by other compositions. While religious scenes were continued and religious thoughts were the principal inspiration, yet there came interruptions and lapses. Secular and historic pieces were put upon the boards. These were occasionally fixed together and played, first one, then another, without attempt at regularity or continuation, as we in the present day may have everything from tragedy to farce in the same season at the same theater." In the 15th century, the favorite representations were the mysteries, and next, the moralities, and after these, dramas and farces. The former were religious or historic dramas, calculated as much for religious or historical instruction and entertainment as for pleasure and amusement. The Last Judgment, the Birth of Christ, the Baptism in Jordan, the Marriage in Cana, and other mysteries in the life of Christ were presented, usually on holy days, at Christmas, Easter, Ascension Day, and Pentecost. It is not in a In not a few cases, the theater was in the open air, and this custom has been kept up in Brittany and certain provinces in France to the present day. While there are regular theater halls in the cities, yet throughout the country are traveling troops of mountebanks, jugglers, conjurers, etc., with trained dogs and other animals who, arriving at a small town in the afternoon, pitch their tents upon the marketplace or any other open square which can be secured, advertise the play by beating of drums or ringing of bells, charge one sou for a stand-up admission, two sous for admissions, and a seat. The stage is made by unrolling a strip of carpet upon the ground or pavement, and here will be performed the sublime tragedy, the touching drama, and the roaring farce. One of the first paragraphs in the chapter on the extravagant and ruinous folly of Gilles in the Mémoire de la Héritière tells that the establishment, organization, and equipment of these theaters and the performance of the plays was at the expense of Gilles, The succeeding paragraphs enlarge upon his immense and ruinous expenditures in this regard. The decoration, apparel, apparatus, and costumes of all the actors were ordered by him. He required the best of everything, while the question of expense or even of value seemed as nothing. When he wanted them, he wanted them, and they were purchased at the asking price. Each person had a special costume according to his role and dignity. The beggar, the valet, the huntsman, as well as the soldier, knight, and noble. The fair ladies the saints in heaven, were all accoutred and equipped with stuffs of such richness as would magnify the greatness and power of the author and owner of it all, and gratify his inordinate ambition. Gold, silver, velvet, precious stones, rich armor, luxurious harness, fine embroidery, silken stuff, satin, and all the marvels of art in profusion. When the ornaments of the church were required in any scene or play, there were copes, "'Chasublais, dalmatics, albs, and all the ecclesiastical robes so rich and sumptuous; his ecclesiastical paraphernalia was at the command of the theater. The follies and ambition of Gilles not only required his theatrical costumes and property to be of the ri- property to be of the richest and most expensive stuffs, but in his maladministration they were bought at high prices. Payment frequently made with promises, greatly increasing their cost. With all this, his pride was such that he never permitted the same dress to be worn twice. Everything was required to be made anew for each representation and for each series of representations. New costumes seemed to have been his particular fad in that day, so that he could use the same terms which now appear in the playbills of the city, entirely new and elegant costumes. Having been once used, they were thrown aside or sold at whatever could be gotten for them. This meant to buy at the highest price and sell at the lowest, a system which we know, well know produces financial ruin. His ambition and desire to please led him into foolish and useless expenditures. All his theaters and the plays rendered by him were free. The people who attended paid nothing. Gilles paid the expenses of the entire entertainment. Consequently, one can easily understand the statements made in the memoirs of the ruin wrought by these representations, the cost of each one being thirty, forty, or 50,000 francs. Gilles' favorite play was the mystery of the Siege of Orléans. Here he was not only actor but principal. It was a drama in verse, though not in rhyme. It was based upon the events of that memorable siege. Kisharat says of it that its historic value is nil, not because the author has removed it from the domain of history, but for the contrary reason that he was quite too near, both in space and time, to the events as they happened, and was therefore unable to take the role of historian and make deductions. He could not form conclusions, nor announce principles. All that he did was to recount the actions and events as they happened day by day. He was a recorder, not an historian. The drama or poem was largely romance. While recounting the daily progress of the siege, it was not a veritable or trustworthy journal thereof. The words put into the mouths of the various actors were probably never spoken by them, certainly never were heard by the author. But they were speech of the day. They were news gathered at the time which might have appeared in the daily newspapers if such things had then existed. It is because of their nearness to the events that they are not history. How long the mystery of the Siege of Orléans continued to be represented in the theater as a drama is immaterial. 140 personages have been introduced upon the stage, not counting the groups of soldiers, peasants, citizens, and musicians. The Marshal de Retz figured in it as one of the prominent actors in close relation to the King and to Joan of Arc. Not only is his name mentioned, but he himself had a speaking part and was present on the stage. Naturally, he would take his own part and appear under his own name in the play— and this was both a compliment to his courage and ability as a soldier and his versatility as an artist. While it kept him constantly before the people, it gave him an opportunity to gratify his ambition. It was useless to give any description of it, for it is simply the representation of the Siege of Orleans, written by one who, while he did not copy the journal, had it under his hand while writing the drama. Because it is in verse, it will not be practicable to translate much or any of it, but a few paragraphs will be given which in which Gilles de Retz figured, and will be inserted in the appendix. A description of one of these mysteries has been given us by Monsieur Paul Saunier. Its presentation took place in the Place de Notre Dame before the cathedral at Nantes, on may twenty first, fourteen thirty nine, under the direction and at the expense of Gilles de Retz. It was the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Virgin Mary. It was written by a young poet Jean Jean Lanot, and Gilles de Retz is reported to have paid him the sum of ten golden crowns. Whether the story told by Saunière is absolute verity is of slight consequence. There can be little doubt that it represents truthfully the custom of the period relating to such spectacles, and is a fair description thereof. Much of it is recognized in accordance with habits and customs of that country in the present day. All public proclamations and announcements by official authority in the provinces are made through the aid of either trumpet or drum, but in Brittany with the trumpet the herald or other officer, when making an official sale, begins generally at the city hall and makes the round of the city, sounding his trumpet at prominent places, calling the people together to hear his announcement, which he makes via voce, and so passes on to the next place, repeating the performance. Lost children are cried in the same way, except that when done by a private individual, a bell is used. In the present case, the herald of arms was richly dressed in the livery of his master, the Baron de Retz, accompanied by a guard of four soldiers or men at arms who escorted him and kept the crowd at a distance while he blew a call on his trumpet and he made his announcement, which is given as follows We, noble and powerful, powerful Baron Gilles de Retz, Marshal of France, Lord of Champotes, Tefage, Machacou, Saint Etienne de Mermort, Pornice, and other places, do by these pre- presents make known that by the express permission of the high and powerful Lord Seigneur Jean de Maestroit, by the grace of God and the Holy Father, the Bishop of Dance, there will be given on the 21st day of the present month, at two o'clock afternoon, at the place of Notre Dame, a presentation of a mystery concerning the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and of Madame the Holy Virgin, his mother. When the herald sees that The soldiers closed up the circle that had been made around him and prepared to escort him to another place, while the crowd cried, Lies, Lies, to the Marshal, Lies to our Lord Bishop. The herald and his men-at-arms departed, and the crowd dispersed. It would scarcely be possible at this late date to obtain a more complete report of the prodigalities of Gilles de Retz than is furnished by Memoir de Heretier, which, as it was sufficient for the king, should be sufficient for us. But there will occasionally crop out of the historical desert of this ancient time a record which, by giving information on a particular subject, lifts the veil from his life and gives us glimpses into certain extravagances, whereby we may imagine the result. One of these, lately found among the archives at Orléans and contributed by M. Douanel, is a memorandum of a visit of Gilles to that city from September 1434 to August 1435. He was accompanied by his suite and retinue, Military and ecclesiastic, his brother René de La was with him, which was the only time they are shown to have been together. And curiously enough, it must have been while the Memoire de Hertier, if not already presented, were being prepared, or at least contemplated, for the decree of the king was published within the next two years. Yet no mention is made therein of René's presence on this trip. Arrived at Orleans, Gilles de Retz installed himself with his personal adjutants at the Hotel of the Golden Cross. While his suite and high officers with their respective retinues were installed in other hotels until, as the minute says, there was not a hotel in all Orléans but was occupied if not filled, by him or by the officers and men of his suite his college, that is, the ecclesiastics 25 or 30 persons were installed at the Crown de Saint-Georges, the choir and their leader at the sign of the sword his armorer, Hector Brosset at the coupe, his brother René Lesseuse at Little Salmon his councillor, Gilles de Sille, Guy de Bonnier, Gaillot, Chambray, Guillaume Tardif, and Guy de Blanchefort, with his captain of the guard at the Grand salman; his chevalier, Monseigneur de Montarnier, Fouques Blasp, Jean de Rain, Bolay, in the image of St. Mary Madeline, Jean de Montclay, at another suite, while men-at-arms, servants, lackeys, and followers, occupied the white horse, the savage man, or the crown of Orleans. While at Orléans in 1434, he made thence during the autumn a trip to the Bourbonnais country, stopping for a time at Mont-Lucon, at the Hotel Crown of France. When his hotel bill for 810 rio d'or was presented, he could only pay 495 and his two servitors, Jean de Selye and Huet de Ville-Arceau, became his guarantors of payment. Everything during the trip was at his expense. They all traveled on horseback, unless it was some high dignitary or que or sick, who had a chariot, horses, and all expenditures were furnished by him in preparing for such a trip. Everybody was provided with new, striking, and consequently expensive costumes suitable for the right suite of such a rich and puissant baron on his return to Brittany in august fourteen thirty five It was found that his travels during the year had cost the round sum of eighty thousand gold crowns. The memoirs say this trip left a train of devoured revenues, lands sold. Signories mortgaged, works of art and valuables hypothecated, with considerable debts and unpaid loans, which menaced ruin and opened an abyss threatening to engulf everything. Among the records found at Orleans was one which, made under the circumstances relating to his expenses and financial condition, throws a strong sidelight on his character, bringing out the recklessly spendthrift side of it, and would go a long way towards justifying the king's decree. Of the interdiction of the sale and mortgage of any property, which, it is not to be forgotten, shortly followed this visit to Orleans. This paper, pre- prepared by Gilles, provided The noble and puissant Lord Monsieur Gilles, Seigneur of Retz, Count of Brienne, Lord of Champotos, Pujage, Marshal of France, has lately, for the good of his soul, and looking to our Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of himself, his late father, mother, relatives, and friends, all sinners, made a foundation in memory of the Holy Innocents at Machacool in Rye, Duchy of Brittany. By this paper he appoints a full corps of priests, vicar, dean, archdeacon, treasurer, canons, chapter, and college. For the support and maintenance of this establishment, he gives in trust, in due and formal language to the King of Sicily and Duke of Anjou, his castle, and Chatelier of Shemtos, and to the Duke of Brittany, one half of barony and lands of Rye. He confirmed this gift before notaries named. He declared the two princes named should act as his trustees, and providing for their possible refusal to act, he names respectively and in succession as future trustees the king, the emperor, the pope. In case they all refuse, the land shall be divided between the knights of the orders of St. John and of St. Lazar. All the princes named refused, and each, as far as he could, interdicted and prohibited Gilles from carrying out this project. It accordingly fell through, yet at the moment of his establishing this priestly organization, he was engaged, as we shall see farther on, in the commission of the most horrible and unnatural of crimes, for which he was, before the end of the decade, decade, to be ignominiously executed. His maison de la Suze has been described, whether actually or only from similar houses of the epoch, is now impossible to tell but it is said to have eclipsed in its luxury and taste the palace of the Dukes of Brittany. It was ornamented and decorated to a high degree. All countries were laid under their tribute to furnish riches for its decoration, Italy for its painting and sculpture, Spain for its Cordovan leather, Flanders for its tapestry, Venice and Bohemia for their crystals and glassware, the Orient for its magnificent stuffs, and Persia for its tiles and faience. While, without doubt, the ceramics of his own and neighboring provinces, like Tours, Orléans, Gienne, Quimper, and Poitou, the latter the forerunner of Limoges, were represented in the luxurious fittings of the houses and chateaux of Gilles, the Baron de Retz. In the Memoir des Héritiers, setting forth the extravagant and ruinous expenditures by which the principal of the estate was being dissipated, was duly presented to the king and necessary proof offered to establish its allegations. The date is not given, but it should have been about 1432 or 33. In 1435-36, the king, having become satisfied of the truth of the matters alleged through his council of state and by letters patent, issued his decree of prohibition against the alienation or encumbrance by gilderats of any of his lands or seigneuries. This decree has been preserved to us in Guipen's history of Nantes. The king enjoined upon his parliament the duty of carrying this decree of interdiction into effect, and under severe penalties he forbade any captains, guards, tenants, or persons in charge from attorning or delivering up to any stranger to the title of any chateau or fortress of Gilles de Retz until parliament should so order. The decree was published at the sound of the trumpet at the principal places concerned, Orléans, Tours, Angers, Champos, Pouzage, Tiffages, St. Jean, d'Angely and other places. The Duke of Brittany refused to accept, register, or publish the decree, and it was in vain that the femme parent et l'ami of Gilles solicited him. It is alleged that this was to enable the Duke to take advantage of the necessities of Gilles and purchase his lands at ruinous prices. He purchased some and took mortgages on others. Champos, Bourgneuf, neuf Benat, and Prince de Prince were mortgages, mortgaged, for the sum of 100,000 g- crowns of gold to be repaid within six years. In this way did Gilles, during these eight years of his life, dissipate the sum of 200,000 crowns for the heritage. The king's interdiction of the sale or mortgage of any of his property aggravated Gilles's situation by increasing his difficulties in obtaining money. He had no scruples about borrowing money from wh- whomsoever he could, and if repayment could be put off as Sufficient length of time he would pr- promise the return of it doubled or troubled, as the creditor demanded the situation must have been irritating to Gilles and doubtless proved his insensi- incentive to magic by which he hoped to discover the philosopher's stone and thereby the means of converting the baser metals into gold, whatever he may have done or thought in this direction prior to the passing of the decree, it seems that later he entered into closer relation with the alchemist and magician and sought to study the practice and practice the black art to a greater degree than he ever had done before. From this on, we have to treat Gilles as a changed man, not only in his conduct, but in his character and desires. He separated from his wife, but established her in the Chateau of Chambos, where he installed himself with his retinue, including his magician, in the two chateaux, one at Machecoul, which he had received from his father, Galit de Laval, but principally at which he had received from his wife. Here we have to treat of him no longer as a soldier or as a noble of France, but in his character of magician, necromancer, debtor, robber, and murderer. Under these circumstances, what course Gilles was to pursue and what could he do to retrieve his fallen fortunes? He required money, but he was spending more than his income. He was selling off his property and reducing his principal in the vain attempt to liquidate his debts, And provide for his present expenses. He did not have strength of character to adopt a rigorous reduction of his expenses and live on a moderate and conservative plan. Indeed, such would hardly have been natural. The great man of a neighborhood who, having been entrusted with large sums of money, or the banker or trader being deeply indebted endeavors to restore restore his broken fortunes by retrenchment of expenditures, only precipitates the catastrophe he seeks to avert. The ostensibly rich man who proposes to make himself better able to meet the demands of his business by disposing of his horses and carriage, closing up his houses, selling his yacht, giving fewer entertainments to his friends, instead of proving himself successful in biting confidence in his ability to pull through, will prove the architect of his own doom. Therefore, what was Gilles de Retz to do? What he did was to rely upon the success of his scheme for the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone in the hope to thus replenish his empty coffers. Chapter 4. Gilles' Crimes Gilles' Abduction of Children His Familiars Chateau Tiffage, First Process Against Gilles Warrant, Arrest, and Imprisonment Chateau de Nantes Beginning in the year 1432, a district comprising a large portion of western France, including the southern part of the province of Brittany, the western part of the province of Maine, in the northern part of the province of Poitou became excited by an undefined fear, which, increased by its uncertainty and vagueness, produced in the people a feeling akin to terror. It was not the fear of war, for the people had had an intimate acquaintance with war for many years. Nor was it the fear of an epidemic, nor of sudden death. And it was not easy to tell with exactness what it was. It was so indefinite that belief in it was at first refused. It was considered by many to be the result of superstition. Some declared it to be something of the vampire race, which by some sort of resurrection had changed its horrible character so that it did not wait to prey upon the dead, but made its attacks upon the living, choosing young children and maidens, and timing the place and manner of attack so that not only was there no defense, but there was also no opportunity for pursuit or recovery. Michelet, in his History of France... Describes it as a beast of extermination, unseen, unknown, unnatural, indescribable, invisible, supernatural, omnipresent, possessed of powers of disappearance on the instant, and so of escape, dissolving into thin air. It was believed by many to be a physical manifestation of the evil one. It made its appearance in one place on one day and at another place the next day, and at a distant place the next. It was here tonight and far away in the morning. It ravaged the country, spreading terror, and leaving in its track not simply fear and mourning, but the torture of insanity and death. There was a mixture of enchantment, of impossibility, about the performance which which left it to be accounted for, only upon the principle of leisure domain, magic, the black art, and the presence of the devil. On all sides, right and left, east and west, north and south, within this terror-stricken district, sometimes each day for a week, sometimes not again for a month, then not for three, And again, not for six months or more, but subject to these intervals came the story from one section to the other of the disappearance, as though by enchantment, of a child or children of tender age. No apparent distinction of sex was made, but the subjects of attack were always young, say from six to sixteen years. Old enough to go about the farm, or from one farm to another, possibly from one village to another, when without warning, apparently without cause, without the slightest evidence as to the means used and without leaving the slightest trace of the tragedy, suddenly a child was gone. No one knew or could find in what direction it had gone, or how it had been taken. All that the terror-stricken parents and family knew was that their child was here today, and now he or she was not. It was playing about the door only a half hour since. Now it was gone, gone as completely as though swallowed by the earth. No one knew where the blow would fall next. No one knew where his family circle was to be invaded. His house stricken. His child taken. Every care and watchfulness was employed. Consultations were had between the stricken parents. The officers of the law were consulted. And all that was known, apparently all that could be discovered, was that their children were here yesterday, engaged in their little plays or about their own little duties around the house or on the farm. And in a moment, though the most rigorous and extensive search was made, they were gone. Gone absolutely. Gone beyond possibility of recovery. Gone in numbers gone from every part of the district mentioned, and no sign or trace left of their fate. Fear, fright, terror took possession of all, and this, mixed with sorrow and grief, broke many a heart, sent many a loving mother in insanity to the grave. The peasants who, by reason of their age and strength, supposed themselves to be safe, walked lightly, as though afraid to put their feet upon the ground, spoke in low voices as if afraid to trust themselves in ordinary tones, and everything throughout the country was done with bated breath, as if in the presence of the dead. The peasants, superstitious at the best of times, were now overcome with fear and gave themselves up a prey to the idea of enchantment and magic, and can only account for the disappearance of their loved ones by the presence of the arch enemy of mankind, against whom they had no means of fighting, and whose assaults upon their devoted children they had no means of resisting. The frightened parents were tortured by the uncertainty of the fate that had overcome their loved ones. Are they dead? Have they been taken to the realms above or to the tortures below? Are they in prison? Are they still living? Are they never to be seen again? Might they not be in a distant part of the country enduring pains and tortures? Might they not even now be weeping and screaming themselves half mad and demanding the presence and comfort of their mother? In what direction should we go? Has nobody seen them? Has search been made? In what direction have we yet to go? No answer came to all these questions. The fate of the children was an impenetrable mystery. Did the parents recover from it? Yes, they became accustomed to it. Human nature can become accustomed to anything. Their fate seemed better, not because it was better, but because, not getting worse, they got used to it and were able to stand it better. The first theory upon which the people settled was that the disappearance of their children was due to fairies, to evil genii, to a supernatural and mysterious enemy. That this mysterious enemy was supernatural, they did not doubt. This belief served to, to increase the pangs of their grief, and to render the unknown and undiscoverable fate of their beloved ones more horrible to contemplate, and more difficult for the parents to bear. They felt themselves incapable and incompetent to war against this mysterious, devastating, supernatural force. Hence they resigned themselves to the affliction, considering it had to have been sent upon them by Almighty God as a punishment for their sins. They did not know what sins they had committed, but felt sure that nothing they had done would justify even Almighty God, in the abduction of the little ones who had not been at fault, and the torture of the parents incident thereto, so they rebelled against their fate. The disappearance of children did not at first create great excitement among the people. Their disappearance was explained in a natural manner. Some accident had happened to them. Possibly they had fallen into one of the many rivers and were drowned. The lakes and rivers were plentiful, their waters deep, their currents swift and the banks steep. One child here in one province, another child there in a distant province. Such a disappearance did not count for much. and did not unduly or wonderfully excite the people. But when it came to spread over the entire country, and by the comparison and the overlapping of searches and the employment of officers, it was discovered that this beast of extermination, this great, powerful, mysterious, supernatural visitor or power, was making itself felt throughout the entire country, and that no house was safe that no parent could say with certainty that his own child might not be taken next morning. Then the country became excited, alarmed, and finally, terror-stricken. At last, it became so apparent that these ravages were confined to a given district, a circle of country approximately bounded by the present cities of Vannes, Rennes, Angers, La Rochelle, and so opening to the ocean. Of this circle, Nantes was approximately the center. This condition continued, growing more acute year by year. Each year, new families were stricken, and the terror became more widely spread. A man of the character and ambitions of Gilles de Retz would naturally have about him a corps of men to assist in carrying out his nefarious courses. They would necessarily be, without fear and without conscience, adepts in secrecy and deceit, with the instincts and abilities of detectives and ready to obey any behest of their master. Gilles had such a corps of lieutenants. Most of them were Bretons, as he was. Thoroughly acquainted with the country, most of them lowly born, many of them illegitimate and strongly suspected to have had fathers of higher birth than their mothers. Gilles made choice of these familiars from among his retinue, selecting the best qualified to carry out his projects and to be his right hand in executing his plans. The names of some of these have been preserved to us in the process against Gilles. Eustache Blanchet, Henriette Griart, Jean Rossignol, Gilles de De Brimont, Etienne Corillot, uh, alias Poitou, Robin Romulart, and one woman, Perrine Martin, alias La Nefray. These performed for Gilles the role of secretary, aide de camp, assistants, guards, spies, or servants, as occasion demanded, and became identified in the minds of the peasants as servants and representatives of Gilles de Retz. They spent practically their lifetime in his service and toward the end of their career they came to be feared throughout the countryside as much as Gilles himself. Indeed, it was their actions which first attracted public attention towards him. It came to be noted that when infant or child had disappeared, some of these had been seen in the neighborhood, and when all things pertaining thereto were so mysterious, the people stood ready to catch at any straw which might serve as a possible solution. The wiser persons, who were not so superstitious and did not attribute this disappearance of children to supernatural causes, but to the action of fiends, discovered and remarked the coincidence of the presence of some one of these with the disappearance of an infant. The attention of the officers was turned in this direction, and certain suggestions or suspicions were given to the bishop at Nantes, who thereupon determined to open a secret inquest for the solution of the mystery. By this means the matter was brought to light. The most prominent and powerful of these familiars of Gilles de Retz was an Italian priest and alchemist, Francois Prelati, He occupied a position different from the others. One of the before-mentioned familiars, Eustache Blanchet, a soi-disant priest belonging to his ecclesiastical retinue, appears to have been better acquainted with the private affairs of Gilles de Retz than any other, and to have been entrusted with higher powers, and sent oftener on journeys of diplomacy and confidential business. For what purpose he should have been sent to Italy can now only be surmised. But in the year of 1436, while in Florence he met Francois Prelati. His history has been given by Saunier, but no one knows how much of it is fact and how much romance. It appears, however, that Prelati was born in Monte Catan in the Valle Nero, and that he was educated as an ecclesiastic, admitted to orders and given the tonsure by the bishop, bishop of Arezzo. He became interested in the study of the occult sciences, especially chemistry, or as it was called then, alchemy, and his love for this science overcame his desire for ecclesiastical service he was about 45 years of age when he became acquainted with gilles de retz he was well bred highly educated of elegant manners handsome in appearance well kept cleanly in person devoting much care to the welfare of his hair beard and hands all of which repaid and showed the attention bestowed upon them he was a good conversationalist of smooth insinuating and seductive manner he spoke latin as well as he did italian His French was excellent, probably better than that of Gilles or the Bretons with whom he associated, while a slightly broken pronunciation conspired to make it more attractive. He had a brilliant and sparkling wit and an active imagination, and was well posted in the affairs of the world, and attractive to his fellows, whether men of letters, men of affairs, or d'hommes de guerre. The description given of him would indicate his appearance to have been that of an elegant gentleman. It goes without saying that he was learned as an alchemist and expert as a necromancer. Such was Francois Prelati, the man who had been brought by Eustache Blanchet from Italy to France to teach Gilles de Retz the black art. Gilles, during this period, occupied alternately, according to his pleasure, two chateaux of Machacoul and Tiffage. The latter is situated to the north of the village of Tiffage and, according to tradition, occupies the site of an ancient Roman camp and is about 15 kilometers south of Clisson and 40 south of Nantes. The chateau occupies an elevated plateau which forms a promontory between the junction of the creek Crome with the river Sevre, both of which bathe the foot of the walls on either side. The latter continues its way northward and empties into the Loire below Nantes. The chateau was a castle covering space enough for a city. It is now in ruins except the Grand Tower and adjacent halls. The walls may be traced with the debris in rows of stones, now covered with sod and grass. It was attacked and burned during the religious wars of the 16th century, but its present ruinous condition began with the breaking out of the Revolution in 1789. The Vendillon, after gaining the Battle of Torfu, occupied it, having repaired it sufficiently to afford shelter and to make it a place of defense. It remained in a fairly good condition until the return of Napoleon from Elba, when it was once again occupied as a recruiting place, or a place of security by the Vendians. After the Battle of Waterloo and the restoration of Louis XVIII, fearing some further use of it by enemies, the government destroyed it, reducing it to its present condition. The lowlands in the neighborhood are marshy and almost become lakes. The Lake of Grand Lieu is not far distant, and others are in the vicinity. The ruins are interesting, and the debris is easily recognized. One with a slight knowledge of the arrangement can trace the walls of the structure, as well as the triple cincture of fortifications surrounding it. These are now covered with sod and green grass and used for pasturage, while the level places like the courts within the castle and the parade ground within the lines of fortification are subjected to cultivation. The chateau at Tafage was partially built in the time of St. Louis. The grand tower now remaining is said to belong to that epoch. The large tower, the small tower, the chapel, the great hall, wherein the baron presided over his retainers, or, if need be, received such lords and signors as came to visit him, the dining room, the kitchen, scullery, with all their necessary appurtenances of cellar, storehouse, warehouses, well room, were all in evidence. Bedrooms, halls, parlors, etc., were prepared in abundance for the reception of lords, ladies, and all who might attend upon the occasion of a ball or fete. On another side of the courtyard, but adjoining the main building, was a shorter wing, large enough to lodge his, lodge his knights, men-at-arms, soldiers, servants, varlets, etc. It was, in these regards, similar to most other extensive castles or chateaux, and can be compared to the chateau of Nantes, where Gilles was tried and convicted. Chateau Tiffauges was a favorite residence of Gilles de Retz. It was a stronghold, in which, if need be, he could have a great security, and in case of war or attack. Could make a good defense. It was large and commodious. Here it was that Gilles de Retz and Francois Prelati, the Italian, had their laboratory in which they endeavored, first by alchemy, then by magic, lastly by murder, to discover the elixir of eternal youth and the transmutation of metals into gold. Here took place the attempt to obtain a conference with the Evil One, with the idea of obtaining his supposed influence in their sublunary affairs. A description of this laboratory has been left us. The chamber was high up in the tower, with communicating passages in various directions, to the large tower and also to the basement, and, as is said, to the oublets in the secret passageway, to the crume and so outside the chateau. The laboratory occupied the full diameter of the tower. An immense chimney was on one side of the room, in which was, <clears throat> in which was placed the furnace, where the mutilated bodies of many of the dead infants were consumed. The chamber had but two windows, one to the north and another to the south, both high up in the wall, both capable of being closed and darkened by solid shutters. Lemaire says, quote, In the highest chamber of the small tower, Gilles had installed an alchemy laboratory, and there employed his three sorcerers, one French, one English, or Picardian, and one Italian. And he describes with minutest detail the apparatus employed. Quote, what Jill desired was that Prelati should make gold, whether by science, by magic, by the intervention of the devil, and by these means united. He attempted the transmutation of metals into gold. He distilled into retorts different liquids destined to dissolve the mineral substances after certain formulas of magic repeated under the invocation of demons. Prelati declared to Jill that to make these operations successful required the addition of the hearts, hands, or eyes but above all the blood of young children. The blood was to be used in tracing the magic circles and figures. Le believes that Prelati employed the secrets of chemical art, sulfur and phosphorus, and similar substances, in forming fiery serpents to deceive Gilles. Quote, Frogs and serpents, inoffensive but frightful in appearance, a leopard which was not else than a large dog with bristling hair, cries of beasts, groans, sounds of trumpets, these were the apparatus employed in the scenes of invocation. Then he tells how to furnish victims for these magicians. Gilles carried on his abduction of children, choosing the little peasants who would not be missed or whose parents would not be likely from poverty to pursue the search. Apparently the first step, at least the first step made public, against Gilles de Retz, charging him with crime, and the first paper forming part of the ecclesiastical record in the archives of the Department of Lois Inférieure, is the, quote, declaration of infamy against Gilles de Retz by the Bishop of Nantes. July 30th, 1440, unquote. It was in Latin, quote, To all of whom these present letters shall come, Jean, by the permission of the Holy Apostolic See, Bishop of Nantes, with full assurance of salvation through our Lord and Savior, salute those present. We hereby make known, by visiting in person, the parish of the Holy Mary of Nantes, in which is built the house or chateau vulgarly called La Sous, the frequent habitation of Gilles de Retz here and after described, a parishioner of this church and of other parish churches designated further on. Upon public rumor and the numerous reports that have come upon us by the denunciatory clamor of Agatha, wife of Denis de la Mignon of Donet, widow of the defunct Reginald Donet of Saint-Marie, of Jean Goubert and his wife St. Vincent, of the widow Curguen of Saint-Croix, Nantes of Jean, wife of Jean Darrel, near Nantes, and Theophanie, wife of Charpentier of Saint-Clement, outside the walls, fortified by the depositions of the synodical witnesses of these churches, and by men who, thanks to their probity and their well-known prudence, are above suspicion, a suspicion and who, in the course of our pastoral visit in the same churches, we ourselves have interrogated with the greatest care upon the facts below indicated and of still others pertaining to the duty of the bishop in his pastoral visits, we have discovered, and the depositions of the witnesses have proved to us, among other things, that Gilles de Retz, our subject and justiciable, by himself or by certain men his accomplices, has strangled, killed, and inhumanely massacred a very large number of infants, that he has committed upon them crimes against nature, that he has made, or has caused to be made, numerous horrible invocations of demons, He has made them them to sacrifices and offerings, and has passed a compact with them, without counting other crimes, numerous and enormous, all of which belong within our jurisdiction. And finally, by several other visits made by us, or by the commissary acting in our name, we know that Gilles de Retz has perpetrated and committed these crimes, and still others, within the limits of our diocese. For which cause he was and is now, and publicly for the knowledge of all, rendered infamous towards all grave and honest men. And to that end, that no person shall have doubt upon this subject, we have ordained and fixed, or caused to be fixed, our seal to these present letters, given at Nantes the day before the last of July, in the year of our Lord, 1440, by the command of Monsignor Bishop of Nantes. It does not appear that this declaration of infamy was ever made known to Gilles de Retz. It was made by the Bishop Bishop of Nantes in accordance with his ecclesiastical right and duty. It had, from early Christian times, had been the duty of the bishops of the Church to make episcopal visits throughout their respective dioceses. By the capitularies of Charlemagne and Carloman, it became the bishop's right, if not his duty, to listen to any complaints of the common people. This was in the nature of an inquest by church authority into the crimes of high or powerful persons, or into public scandals which were without other rectification. The proceeding might be likened to an ecclesiastical grand jury. It was, like that of the grand jury, a secret inquest, inquisitio fame, and in this particular instance, establishing the infamy of Gilles, it opened against him the inquisitory proceeding according to the rule. This declaration of infamy made by the bishop and based upon the complaints he had received and scandals he had heard during his Episcopal visit was the beginning of the prosecution against Gilles. The secret investigation doubtless continued and culminated in the citation of the bishop to Gilles de Retz, September 13th to appear on September 19th and answer the charges. After After the preamble and declarations of the requisite power and authority and his knowledge of the crimes of Gilles and the public clamor In the official document, Herlement Ululoontium, the bishop proceeds, "...for these causes we will no longer hide the monstrous things, nor will we allow heresy to develop develop itself, that heresy which, like a cancer, devours everything, if it is not promptly extirpated, even to the last root. Farther than that we would apply a remedy as prompt as it is efficacious. Therefore we enjoin you, all and singular." And to those of you in particular to whom the present letter shall come, immediately and in a definite manner, each for himself and without counting the other, without depending upon the care of any other, to cite before us or before the official of our cathedral church on Monday, the fete day of the exaltation of the true cross, september nineteenth, Gilles, as aforesaid designated the Baron of Retz, to submit to our authority and to accept our jurisdiction. We ourselves cite him by these letters to appear before our bar. To respond to the crimes that are laid upon him. Execute therefore these orders, you and each of you and every one of you, cause them to be executed. Give it at Nantes on Tuesday, the 13th of December, in the year of our Lord 1440. Whether the Bishop of Nantes had, in his official capacity, already established a permanent ecclesiastical court for the trial of such cases as might properly be brought before it, does not appear nor whether he had the necessary paraphernalia of officers such as prosecutors, clerks, record keepers, and an executive officer to serve processes, maintain order, etc., as would be usual and necessary in all regularly established courts. So it is not known whether the executive officer charged with the service of this writ was a regular officer or only one appointed for this occasion, but it abundantly appears that one Robert Guillaume, a notary of Nantes, received the writ for execution, and that in this matter he acted as executive officer for the bishop. Gilles de Retz was at that time at his chateau of Machacoul. Robert Guillaumet took his aide Jean L'Aube, a captain in the service of the Duke of Brittany, with a number of his troop, and together they repaired to Machacoul for the purpose of arresting Gilles on the warrant of the bishop. There has been some discussion over the part taken in the affair by the Duke of Brittany himself, and how far the proceeding met his approval, and how far he stood ready to give aid and assistance in carrying out the purpose of the bishop. Michelet asserts that the Duke of Brittany was highly favorable to the accusation, that he was delighted at the opportunity to thus strike at a Laval, and he ascribes this to the fact that the Laval family, though related to the Montforts, of which the Duke was one, had formed against him an opposition, the intention of which was to deliver Brittany to France. There can be but little doubt that the Duke of Brittany was entirely favorable to the Bishop. They were near relatives and good friends. They had always stood together, and though the Bishop never had any dispute with Gilles de Retz, yet the Duke frequently had. The Duke had already foreseen the waning fortune of Gilles, and stood ready to profit by it. He had refused to make publication in Brittany of the decree of interdiction of the King for the sake of the opportunity which might accrue to obtain good bargains in purchasing the property of Gilles. It is scarcely possible, dependent as he must have been upon the Duke and his government, and the power and force of the secular arm for the execution of any decree that might be passed, that the Bishop of Nantes would proceed against so powerful a baron as Gilles, the Dean of the nobility of Brittany, Marshal of France, and Lieutenant General of the Duke's army, and enter upon an undertaking so gigantic, so fraught with danger, and so easy to miscarry, without having first consulted with, and obtained the approval and favor of his sovereign with a promise of material assistance and governmental aid in case of need. This understanding between the bishop and the duke is established by the outcome of the process. We see that in every step the bishop not only received countenance and favor at the hands of the duke, but that he could be relied upon to furnish the necessary strong arm for the execution of the bishop's writs and decrees. Armed with the writ and warrant of arrest, Robert Guillaumet and Jean Le Habe Proceeded to Machicoul with their troop of soldiers. What was their reception? Would they be successful in their undertaking and bring the mighty Baron de Retz back to Nantes as prisoner? Would he yield to the mandates of the law, obey the command of the bishop, and surrender himself as prisoner? He had a chateau, a veritable stronghold, and he had his army of retainers within it. He could divide both Robert Guillaumet with his writ and Jean Le Ab with his escort, but would he do so? Would he resist or would he yield? Michelet passes the highest encomiums upon this little band whose intrepidity and courage he lauds as though he was a leading of a forlorn hope for its devotion to duty in entering upon so dangerous a procedure as this arrest. There does seem, however, to have been any reasonable apprehension of danger. If Gilles resisted arrest, he would simply remain within his castle, refuse to open his gate, and bid defiance to the officers. They would then return to Nantes, and report their failure, and what would be done further was a matter for their superiors, the authorities of the kingdom. There may have been speculations as to what what moved Gilles to surrender, but no one can tell with certainty what thus influenced him. He had three alternatives, resist arrest and fight it out with the authorities, drive back the officers, then flee the country, or submit to arrest. To shut himself up in his castle and resist arrest would bring down the entire power of the kingdom. He would be excommunicated by the church and besieged by the Duke's army. There was little prospect of success in that direction. Flight would be a confession of guilt. While he could would have to leave everything behind, it would be practically impossible for him to take his fortune or even any considerable amount of valuables with him, and he would soon become poverty-stricken and an outcast. It is more likely that he pursued the conservative course of submitting to arrest trusting to his rank, fortune, power, and the law's failure to make proof against him, hoping by these to evade conviction. That he was technically guilty of both heresy and sacrilege, there could be but little doubt, and it appears that he had greater fear of these charges than of the others. When he found these were not to be pressed, and that he was to be charged with the abduction of infants, he may have felt stronger in the knowledge that he had never personally committed these crimes, and that they could not be directly proved against him. It is to be remembered that these offenses had been running for eight years, that they had been committed in all parts of the country, always in isolated places east, west, north, south. And Gilles may have come to the conclusion during the long series of years that whatever might be proved against his accomplices and active agents, nothing could ever be proved against him. And now, as he must make a decision immediately upon the arrival of Robert Guillaume and his warrant, Gilles may have felt the shortest and easiest way was the best. Partially, then from pride, from policy, from bravado, and in the belief that he would be able to feed his adversaries in their proofs, he gave orders to lower the bridge, to raise the portcullis, and to open the gates of the castle. Submitting himself to arrest, he is reported to have said, quote, I have always had the design to become a monk, and here comes the ab, abbe, to whom I now engage myself. Robert Guillaume and Jean Le made search of the castle, Prelati, Poitou, Henriette were arrested with Gilles at the chateau. Blanchette was taken in the town, but most of the retinue of Gilles escaped. Then the escort of Jean le Ab put themselves in order of march, guarding their prisoners. Arrived at the chateau of Nantes, the gates were opened and Gilles de Retz, the dean of the barons of Brittany, marshal of France, and his party were conducted within its heavy walls as prisoners and malefactors. Gilles was assigned one of the upper chambers in the Tour Neuve of the Chateau, and here he remained during the trial, until the last day, when he was probably placed in the condemned cell. His accomplices accomplices were not treated with the same consideration, but were thrown pell-mell into the common prison of the castle. The Chateau of Nantes is really a castle, and would be called such in England, or in English-speaking countries. It was built by, and had always belonged to, the government, first to the duke and afterward to the king. Its construction dates from the 10th century. It was commenced by Conan, a Count of Rennes, a, a usuper, usurper, who commenced a, the castle as a stronghold, by the possession of which he hoped to resist the lawful claimant of the duchy and overawe the inhabitants of the city. That portion, called Tourneuve, was built at this epoch, situated at the confluence of the ridder, river Eure with the Loire, and the waters of each of these rivers originally bathed the foot of the walls. Conan did not long enjoy his possessions in Nantes. He was attacked and overthrown, and Amaric de Thouard took possession under the title Count of Nantes. During this epoch, he built the Chateau of Champ-Tosseux, which figured as the place of the capture of Casson. In the year 1207, Guy de Thouard repaired the Chateau at Nantes, and in 1227, Pierre de Drou enlarged it. And so it remained until the time of Francis II, when, under Du Chirfan in 1480 to 1499, it was enlarged in its present dimensions. The bastion, or Tour Macor, constructed in 1588 by the Duke of that name, the Governor of Nantes, was situated at the angle of State Street and Port Maillard. It has been renewed and restored sundry times since then, but not to affect the integrity of the building as a whole. The Tour Neuve was the prison of Gilles de Retz. In the second story was the Grand Hall, or audience chamber, in which the ecclesiastical court was held. The Chateau of Nantes has figured largely in the history of Brittany and France. It was the official residence of the Count of Nantes. The Duke of Brittany resided there when in the city, and so it was occupied by the kings of France and other great noble personages during their passage through or temporary residence in the city. Charles Eighth and Duchess Anne were married in his chapel. The celebrated Edict of Nantes, issued by Henry IV, King of France, in April 1598, by which the Protestants were permitted to exercise their religion without hindrance, was passed and signed in this building. In 1654, the Cardinal of Retz, not to be confounded with Gilles de Retz, was a prisoner here, and thence made his escape. Minister Fouché was a prisoner in this chateau. Madame Sévigné was also held here in 1648. And in 14, 1842, the Duchess of Berry was also prisoner in this chateau. Chapter 5. Gilles' trial before the Ecclesiastical Tribunal. The Ecclesiastical Tribunal, record in the archives of Loire Inferior. The trial, his confession, judgment, and sentence. The Ecclesiastical trial against Gilles de Retz was, of course, conducted by the bishop. He was the representative of the church in the diocese, and he alone had the authority to act. His name was Jean de Maestrois. He was originally bishop at St. Brieuc, but he had been bishop of Nantes since 1419. He called as his assistants in the trial to aid by their counsel and advice the bishops of Mons, of St. Brieuc, of St. Lo, one of the officials of the church at Nantes, and with them Pierre de la Hospital, president of the High Court of Brittany, whose aide was asked to represent the civil law and to direct the charges, the witnesses, and the debates in such manner that they should come within the civil law. Three of the notaries of Nantes were made clerks, with a foreign assistant. Robert Guillaumet was the executive officer, that is to say, the sheriff or bailiff of the court. The prosecuting officer appointed by the bishop was William Champollion, the curé of St. Nicholas at Nantes. It has been said that the bishop, for a considerable length of time, had been receiving and hearing complaints and charges against Gilles de Retz, and that especially during the last month he had been investigating their truth. In this he was aided by the aforesaid William Champion, who would thus have been entirely familiar with the charges against Gilles de Retz. It was therefore eminently proper that he should be appointed prosecutor. Whether the bishop had the full power under either the civil law or the ecclesiastical law, To make the foregoing appointments of colleagues on his own motion, and according to his own will, is not here determined, nor does it appear in making these appointments, whether the accused was consulted or whether he gave his consent, nor does it appear that he either took or had the right to take exception to them, or any of them by such exception deprived them of the right to act in his case. As to one aid of the bishop, Gilles' consent was asked and obtained before he was allowed to sit. That was Brother Jean Blouin, of the Order of Frere Prachur at the Convent of Nantes. He had been appointed as Vice-Inquisitor for the Diocese of Nantes by the authority of the Grand Inquisitor of France, B. N. Medici, who had been appointed to that office by the Pope. Great stress is laid throughout the process, wherever this appointment came in question, on the fact that Gilles de Retz had consented to it before the priest took his seat on the bench. Jean Blouin was a man of about 40 years of age who seemed to have commended himself for his moderation in making a decision and for his firmness in adhering to it. Abbe Broussard classes him as a digne de et loges apprises de tout le monde. Another tribunal represented the civil law, and it was by this that secular sentence of execution was passed. In France, as in all countries under the civil or Roman law, and in some of the countries under the common law, there has been a separate jurisdiction of certain offenses for the ecclesiastical court. As a matter of course and necessary for the continuance and good administration of justice, there would be some controversies of which these two courts would have concurrent jurisdiction. It is quite impossible in such a work as the present to go into this question. Those who are interested in the subject are respectfully referred to a uh, g- general history of these subjects as applied to England, consult the great work of History of Common Law by Sir Henry Maine. The record of the process against Gilles de Retz in the archives of the Department of Lois Inferieure has been adverted to. We now come to a point where it is almost the entire evidence. It consists of the records of the two courts, one the ecclesiastical court kept by the clerks before mentioned, and to which names of some, one, or all of three are signed for each day, either Jean de Jean Petit, Guillaume Lez or Nicholas Giraud. This record, made each day, apparently was supervised and made official by the prosecutor William Champillon, and it seems that more than one copy was made of it at the time. This was in Latin, though French was interjected occasionally. The other record record was for of the civil tribunal. The record of the day's proceedings being reduced to writing and signed by Tucherand as commissioner of the civil court, and by one of his aides, or as they call them, assesseurs who signed, alternating with Téchironde. Their names were Nicolas Chateau, Michael Evillard, and Jean Capogorge. This record was kept in French, the vulgar tongue, and very bad French, and a very vulgar tongue it was. It would be interesting to philologists to note the changes during the last 550 years in the spelling and doubtless pronunciation of the words of the French language. These two records of the trial, the ecclesiastical and the civil, are treated as one, and their originals are filed together in the archives of the Department of Lore Inferior in the locality designated as Côté 189. Four copies of this record have been made, two in the year of 1530, one of which was at the request of Gilles de Laval, and another for the Sieur de la Tremois. The copy given to the family of Laval has disappeared and no trace of it is known. The other, for Trumois, was placed in the Chateau of Thouars, which, it is to be remembered, was the family name of the wife of Gilles de Retz. This copy has taken its name from this chateau and is known in history as the Manuscript de Thouars. It was left in this chateau until its existence was forgotten. When the chateau was bought by the state and became part of the national domain, all papers and documents belonging to the family were transported to the Chateau of Serrant in Anjou of which one of the ladies of the family of Tremois was mistress. This copy of the record was in a pile of documents, tossed pell-mell and without order, and here Monseigneur Marchiquet, the archivist of the Department of Maine-et-Loire, discovered it. The Duke de la Tremoy immediately took steps for its preservation. This record was on parchment like the original, and comprises 420 pages, of which 303 in Latin, are the record of the ecclesiastical trial. The last 808 pages constitute the record of the Civil Tribunal and are in French. Two other copies have been made in modern times, one for the Bibliothèque Nationale, Paris, made under the Second Empire, and one for the public library at Carpentras, both of which have been certified as true. The author procured a photograph of an open page from the original ecclesiastical record in the archives at Nantes was made on his personal application while he was consul of the United States at Nantes. These records will be explained in this work and upon their foundation rests the entire history of Gilles de Retz. Without this record or its copies, the true story of Bluebeard could not be written. Michelet, in his description of the arrest and trial of Gilles de Retz, depends on two manuscript copies, which he mentions in a note. One in the Bibliothèque Royale, the other communicated to him by M. Louis Dubois. <clears throat> the warrant of arrest of Gilles de Retz was signed by the bishop on the 13th of September, 1440. He was executed the next day, the 14th, and on that day, Gilles was thrown in prison. On the 19th, five days after, he was brought before the bishop in the great hall of the Tour Neuve in the Chateau at Nantes. No information has been prepared, no indictment filed. The prosecutor informed Gilles that he was charged with a crime of heresy, and asked if he was willing to be tried before the ecclesiastical court, to which he consented, and added, with a defiant air of full assurance, that he would recognize and advance any other ecclesiastical judges, as he had a great desire to clear himself of such accusation in the presence of any inquisitor. It was on this occasion that the Bishop of Nantes called to his aid an auxiliary judge, Jean Blouin of the Order of Frère Pricheur, the vice-inquisitor of the faith for the Diocese of Nantes, And then, this business having been brought to a close, the session was adjourned adjourned until the 28th of September, when the witnesses would be heard. On Wednesday, the judges met, not in the great audience chamber, but in the hall below. It was and is the custom of the prosecution of criminal cases to have the investigation of the witnesses before either the court or some high officer of justice prior to the public and official trial. In this investigation, the procedure corresponds in some degree to that of our grand jury or more properly before the prosecuting attorney as well as the presiding judge. The inquest made by the Bishop of Nantes and with him his present prosecuting attorney, William Champignon, during the summer proceeding had been secret. The witnesses had been called up separately and examined privately. But on this occasion, the session was open, at least to all witnesses. And as Michelet describes them, quote, a cloud of witnesses, poor people, came up single file, crying and sobbing, while they recounted the details of the abduction of their children. Their cries and tears added to the horror of the crimes which they recounted and showed the great sorrow and grief to which they had been subjected and the terrors through through which they had passed. The following is a record of this session and the depositions of the witnesses heard. Quote, The register in this case in cases of faith, in the presence of the Reverend Father in Christ, Lord Jean de Malastrois, Bishop of Nantes, and brother Jean Blouin, vicar of Father Guillermas Merici, the inquisitor mentioned below, against Gilles de Retz, soldier, lord, and baron of the same place, under accusation. In the name of the Lord, Amen. In the year of the Lord, 1440, on Wednesday, September 28th, in the third indiction, in the tenth year of the pontificate of our Most Holy Father in Christ, and Lord Eugenius IV, Pope by divine providence, and during the session of the Council of Basel, there appeared before the Lord Bishop Johannes de Malastro and brother Johannes de Bluen, vicar of Guillermas Merici, the inquisitor in manners of heretical wickedness, and before their scribes, the person to be mentioned below, who, in tears and sorrows, complained of the loss of their children and grandchildren, and of others mentioned below, asserting that these children and others had, by the aforesaid Egidius de Reis, or Gilderai, and certain other accomplices of his and his abettors been treacherously carried off and inhumanly strangled, and that he had committed upon them sins against nature, that he had often invoked evil spirits and offered homage to them, and had committed very many other enormous and unheard of crimes, of which the ecclesiastical court takes cognizance. Of whom the first complainant is Agatha, the wife of Denis de la Mignon, of the parish of Holy Mary of Nantes, stating that a certain Colin, her grandchild, the son of Guillermas Avril, about twenty years of age, small of stature and white of face, having on one ear a birthmark in the year of 1439 in the month of August or thereabouts, on a Monday morning early went to the house commonly called Lasus in the city of Nantes, belonging to and occupied by Baron de Reis, or Gilles de Reyes, and afterwards she did not see the aforesaid Colin, nor did she hear anything about him until a certain Perina Martini, alias La and was arrested and shut up in the prisons of the secular court of Nantes. After this arrest she says that she heard it said by many that very many boys and innocent children had been kill, carried off and killed by Gilles de Retz. She does not know to what purpose. Likewise the widow, widow of Reginald Donet of the parish of Holy Mary of Nantes also complained that Jean her son and son of aforesaid Donet used to frequent the house of de la Seuze in the city of Nantes. And since the feast of St. John the Baptist of the year 1438, she heard nothing about him until the aforesaid Perina Martin, alias La Maffray, was arrested in prison and confessed that she had given him over to the aforesaid De Ratz and his companions. Joanna, the wife of Guilla de Litt of the parish of St. Denis of Nantes, likewise complained that her son Guillermas used to visit the house de la Suze and went there during the first week of last Lent. She had heard M. Jean Briand say that he had seen him in the aforesaid house on seven or eight successive days, that she had never afterwards seen her son, and that she suspected that he had been put to death in that house. Johannes Hubert and his wife, parishioners of St. Vincent of Nantes, complained that a certain son of theirs, Jean by name, about 14 years of age, went to the house of Lasus two years before the feast of the Nativity of St. John of last year, and then returning to the house of his parents, told his mother that he had cleansed the room of the aforesaid de Retz in the house de Lasus, and had therefore bread in the aforesaid house, which bread he brought home and gave to his mother, to whom he sa- also said that he was in favor with Mr Retz, and that the Lord had given him white wine to drink. Consequently, he immediately returned to the house of Sus, and was never seen again by his parents." Joanna, wife of Johann Darel of the parish of Saint Similian near Nantes, complained that on the feast of Saint Peter's and Paul the year before, she was going home from the church of Nantes in the evening, and a child of hers, aged seven or eight years, was following her. When she had reached the church of Saint Saturnine of Nantes, or near it, she looked around to see her son, whom she thought to be following her, but she saw him neither then nor ever after. The wife of Yvonne. Huguen, stonecutter of the parish of Holy Cross of Nantes, complained that she had given to a certain Poitou, a servant of Mr. Rett's, one of her sons. This she did between the feasts of Easter and Ascension, to be a servant to him, as the aforesaid Poitou asserted. The son was about fifteen years of age, and afterwards she never saw him again. Theophania, the wife of Eton Charpentier, butcher of the parish of Saint Clement near Nantes, complained that Peter, the son of Ionette de Ligue, The grandchild of the complainant, ten years old or thereabouts, was lost two years ago, and from that time nothing was heard of him until the aforesaid Perina Martini, uh, alias La Pelison, nicknamed La Maffray, confessed, as is said, that she had given him to the followers of Gilles de Retz. The wife of Peter Kuperey likewise complained that she had lost her two sons, one eight and the other nine years old. Johannes Magnet complained that he had lost a son, Wherefore, said complainants said that they suspected that the aforesaid M.D. Ray and his accomplices were culpable and conscious of the loss and death of the aforesaid children. The judges and those present and in authority were much moved by these scenes, and they declared that such crime should not go unpunished, however high the rank of the accused, and they directed the bailiff to notify Gilles to appear before their tribunal on the 8th of October, to respond to their presence and accusations against him. On that day, more witnesses were introduced, but their depositions were not written out, or at least are not in the record. The court was opened in a great audience chamber in due form and solemnity about nine o'clock in the morning. The audience was public and the hall was crowded. Gilles was brought to the bar as a criminal and required to plead. He carried a high head, looking around him disdainfully, as in the days of his power and strength. The bailiff recited that, in accordance with the orders given him, he had the possession of the body of Gilles de Retz, which he now presented before the court. Immediately the prosecutor arose and proceeded verbally with the arraignment of the prisoner. It is to be remembered that the methods of procedure in the courts of that country are now, and were then quite different from that of the common law courts. After the oral statement of the crimes of which he was accused, the prosecutor called upon Gilles to plead, to which Gilles, also orally, declared his refusal, and demanded an appeal from the Bishop of Nantes and the Vice-Inquisitor, supposed to be an appeal to the Archbishop at Tours, or to the Pope himself. His appeal was refused immediately, and his plea demanded. Michelet, in the history of France, justifies Gilles in his refusal to plead and demand for an appeal, for, he says, one cannot deny that the judges before whom Gilles was to be tried were his enemies. Gilles seems, in making these demands, to have intended to use the law's delay more than to have had any special hope of being sustained by the higher courts. It is remarkable, though, to consider the value attached by the court to Gilles' plea. It was evident that when he did plea, it would be a plea of not guilty, but this seemed to have had no effect upon the judges or upon their course of procedure. They appeared quite willing to permit the plea of not guilty, but were determined to have a plea of some kind entered. It would be Curious to trace the causes of this solicitude on the part of the judges. The filing of the plea may have been required for some purpose deeper than the appearance would indicate. Possibly it stood in the stead of the present rule of law that requires the criminal to be arrested and brought before the court in order to ha- give it jurisdiction. True, the party can, in France, be tried to, in his absence and convicted in contumation. But this can only be done after the party shall have been arrested and filed his plea. In murder trials, no conviction can be had in court of any civilized country until the proof shall be made of the corpus delicti. It would appear as though the importance of this plea was that it should be an evidence of the present presence of the prisoner before the court. It may have been, in the eye of the law, a synecdoche, where a part stood for the whole, a plea standing for the evidence of arrest and presence of the prisoner before the court, which was necessary to give it jurisdiction of the case. However, this may have been the court manifested great determination to obtain the plea from Gilles. They gave him some days to consider the matter, but he replied that at once that, quote, none of the articles which you have presented against me are true except two things therein charged. The baptism that I have been received and the renunciation which I have sworn against the demon his pomp and his works. I am now and have always been a true Christian. Upon the receipt of this answer and the defiance. The prosecutor became indignant. He offered his oath to support each and every one of the articles he had presented. Turning to Gilles, he demanded that he make some, the same oath, and in the same manner, that is, between the hands of the bishop and the vice inquisitor. This was demanded of him four different times. He was begged, pleaded with, implored, threatened, menaced with the ex- excommunication, but he made, remained strong in his refusal. What a strange thing is human nature. This man had committed the most fearful, inhuman, and base crimes. Crimes against the innocent and defenceless, and yet, when brought to the bar of trial, he insisted that he was a true Christian, and whatever else he might do or have done, he stood firm in his resolve not to take a false oath. He he could commit murder times without number, and he seemed to consider the punishment for this relating only to the body. A false oath taken before God, God, seemed to him to carry its punishment into the next world, and to imperil his soul through eternity. He was willing to commit murder, but he was afraid to commit perjury.